Isn't it wonderful to sing to the Lord? Wonderful to be in His presence. Okay, well, we're in Matthew chapter 9. And today we're going to do verse 18. I'm sorry, verse 14 to verse 26. Uh, before we do this, review uh, last week was Matthew 9, 1 through 13. So as we've been going through the gospel according to Matthew, we've been working on harmonizing the scriptures. I mean, we see the same accounts, the same stories that are in Matthew and Mark and in Luke, sometimes even in John, although John is mostly completely unique in the accounts he records. Um, so let's, let's talk about this paralytic who was healed. Um, Matthew, we, we've learned that Mark, what's unique about Mark when he recounts the stories? What does he do, usually? That's right, he gives more detail than anyone else. For example, how many, how many friends brought, brought the paralytic? Four. Mark tells us that. Um, and what, what, what did they do to get the paralytic in the house? Tiles. Yeah, so we get the tiles from the other Gospels as well, not from Matthew. Um, and this paralytic was brought down in the middle of the house. And what was the first thing Jesus addressed? His physical need or a spiritual need? That's right. That's right. So this idea going around, maybe as you encounter in the open air, people saying you have to meet someone's physical needs or their felt needs first in order to minister them spiritually is, is wrong. Now that can be done at times. There's no sin in doing that. But we don't have no rule that forces us or obligates us to meet someone's physical need first so we can preach it on the gospel. But that's, a, that's a false concept going around. So we can't let people, and this is just one example we can use. And when Jesus said, uh, your sins are forgiven you, what, what was the reaction of the Pharisees? Blasphemer. Because who, who can only forgive sins? Now seeing that the Pharisees are right in their idea here. You can't forget. Only God can forgive sin. But they weren't realizing this is God manifested in the flesh. And what did he do immediately or after they said that to prove to them? Actually, they didn't say it. They thought that. What did he do to prove to them that he was God? What's the first thing he did? He did two things. What's the first thing he did? He exposed their thoughts. Who but God could have known their thoughts? And then what did he do next? He gave them supernatural proof. Because who but God can raise a lame man and let him walk? So he gave plenty of evidence to them that he was God, manifested in the flesh. And it proved to him that he, the Son of Man, does have the power on earth to forgive sins. Now the Son of Man, where does that come from, that, that phrase? What's the first time we see it in the Bible? Nope. Daniel. Yeah, that's easy for you to remember. Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. We looked at that scripture for a little bit here. And, and who, the Son of Man, what happens to the Son of Man in that scripture? He receives the kingdom. And which kingdom, does it, which kingdom does he receive? The everlasting kingdom. And 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 who who is who does the son of man uh, who does he who does he talk to in the, in Daniel seven thirteen to fourteen? What is what is the name of the person he talks to there? Ancient of days, who is God the Father, which shows once again it's good proof for the Trinity because 
the Son of Man, it says right here in uh, Daniel 7, 13, And behold, one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven, he came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. So he came, so it's one person coming to another person, which is another proof for the Trinity. So you have the Son of Man and the Ancient of Days. The Ancient of Days isn't the Son of Man, the Son of Man isn't the Ancient of Days. It's separate people there. So by, even by calling himself the Son of Man, Jesus is showing them, listen, I'm the one being talked about in, in, in Daniel 7. But the St. John's a very humble title for himself because he's, he's relating himself back to his humanity, and that he's humbled himself in the form of a man, and taken on flesh for a little time, lower than angels, as Hebrew says, and as Psalm says. For a little time, he's lower than angels. He humbles himself to that point. And then we also looked at uh, Matthew, the tax collector, and what happened to him. What, no, what, what happened as soon as Jesus says, come follow me, he followed in, and then what happened? What, what's the first thing that happened after that? Had a big feast at his house, like coming out party. And who did he invite? All the uh, righteous people? Sinners and his friend, tax collector friends. He invited them all to come to this feast to hear from Jesus. And let's say, listen, I'm following him from now on. He ceased to be a tax collector from there on out. And the Pharisees asked, why do you, why do you just sit with tax collectors and sinners? Why does he eat with them? Why does he sit with them? And he said, those who are well, I have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. And we looked at that word sick and saw how it relates to Calvinists who will say, you know, we're dead in our trans- trespasses and sins, and they'll say dead means you have no ability to choose, and then if I respond with, well, dead doesn't mean in the scriptures, and I give the example of the man who's floating in the sea and no, no hope, no help, someone tossed him a life preserver, and they'll say, well, you're saying the guy's sick. He's dead. He's sitting there dead in the water. Well, Jesus says they were sick here. So, see, they can choose. So next time I hear a Calvinist say that, I'm going to say, look, look, look. Jesus called them sick. And they need a physician. And you're telling me, after becoming a Christian, you still remain sick? But I'll tell you about your healer. You don't have a very good doctor. You don't have a very good doctor. That's what it really comes back to, the crux of this issue of holiness, biblical holiness, is how powerful is your God? You know, if your God's the kind of God that forces everything to happen, that does happen, that never has happened, that never will happen, but yet you still stay a, a sinful, wicked person every day, day in and day out, what does that say about your God? He always doesn't want you to live holy. Otherwise, he'd force you to do it. So we haven't, we wouldn't be able to sing the song we just sang last. Holy, holy, holy is Lord God Almighty. We couldn't sing that. Because he doesn't want holiness. He wants sinfulness most times. More times than none. And that's the version of your God. Then we looked at I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Go and learn what this means. And it seems that just about everybody in that culture had to go and learn what that meant because they looked down upon the tax collectors and the sinners and who needed mercy and they wouldn't offer it to them. They'd separate themselves from them. But he said, go and learn what this means. And even for the, the disciples, we, we learned that it had to have been hard for them to be around all these tax collectors. They were considered the worst in the Jewish society for aligning themselves with the Romans and taking money from the Jewish people to pay to the Roman government who was lording over the Jewish people. And we have to learn what this means. We can't become like the Pharisees. That God desires mercy, not sacrifice. And that's relating back. If you go back to where it's relating there, it's talking about the, the ritualistic things that the, the Pharisees did. That above all, God desires mercy, 
He desires you to, to walk humbly before your God, to walk, to love uh, justice and love mercy. That's what he wants us to do. Look at some scriptures regarding that. Okay, let's let's go into start in verse fourteen and read through verse twenty six. Then the disciples of John came to him, saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the friends of the bridegroom mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? But a days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch pulls away from the garment and the tear is made worse. Nor do they put new wine into old wineskins, or else the wineskins break. The wine is spilled, and the wineskins are ruined. But they put new wine into new wineskins, and both are preserved. While he spoke these things to them, behold, a ruler came and worshipped him, saying, My daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her, and she will live. So Jesus arose and followed him, and so did his disciples. And suddenly a woman who had a flow of blood for twelve years came from behind and touched the hem of his garment. For she said to herself, If only I may touch his garment, I shall be made well. But Jesus turned around, and when he saw her, said, he said, Be of good cheer, daughter, your faith has made you well. And the woman was made well from that hour. When Jesus came into the ruler's house and saw the flute players and a noisy crowd wailing, he said to them, Make room, for the girl was not dead, but sleeping. And they ridiculed him. And when the crowd was put out, he went in and took her by the hand, and the girl arose. And a report of this went out into all the land. Okay, so what we first see coming here is, uh, if we were to go to the Mark and to the Luke account of what's going on in verses 14 through 17, we would see it's not just the disciples of John coming to him, it's the disciples of John and the disciples of the Pharisees both coming to him. Matthew just records one of them coming to him. Um, but if we look at the other two accounts, we'd see that it's both groups coming to him and asking this question. And listen, listen to the question, see if you catch anything here. Why do we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not fast? Now, what is wrong with this question? We've gone through fasting already, prayer and fasting. What do we see about prayer and fasting in Jesus, when Jesus talked about it? It's private. It's something that you shouldn't be saying, we do it often. It's nothing to boast about. And... If you're if if you're saying why do not your your disciples do not fast, how would you know that they're doing it privately? And why are you looking for that in them? So you can compare yourself to them and say, look, I fast often. You fast just every once in a while. You know what what is the, what is their motive here? And we do know as we look at the the parable of the tax collector and the Pharisee, which is found in Luke eighteen twelve. The Pharisee in that parable, this is Jesus speaking now. He's giving a parable. Fast twice a week. And that's that probably be considered often for them. Um, and Jesus gives his answer here. And listen to what his answer is. Can the friends of the bridegroom mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? See, fasting and mourning are always combined. A brokenness, a mourning during fasting, sackcloth and ashes. But the bridegroom is with them. They have reason to rejoice. Not reason to be sad. When he's taken away, then they'll have reason to be sad. And... Uh, I don't know if this is a good analogy or not, but I would liken it to almost to like a bachelor's party. Not a sinful bachelor's party, but when you have a, a celebration for your friend before he gets married. You have a celebration with him. And uh, then he goes away. 
And of course, it's not a perfect analogy, but uh, you know, oftentimes when your your friend gets married, you don't see him as much. You know, they they cleave to their wife, and if it's a woman, she cleaves to her husband, and they become one flesh. And you don't hang out with them as much as you used to. You lose time with them. But I want to read to you something from Revelation chapter 19 here. And I was reading this the other night, and it brought great joy to my heart. And uh, Revelation chapter 19, starting in verse 7. Let us be glad and rejoice, and give him glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his wife has made herself ready. And to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright, for the fine linen is a righteous acts of the saints. Then he said to me, Right blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true sayings of God. So right now, literally speaking, no Christian is married to Jesus. They're simply betrothed to him. They're engaged to him. You're in an engagement period. Because guess right, right, right now, you are not dwelling with him. And it's only after you get the marriage, the actual marriage is consummated, that you begin to dwell with your spouse. That's what happens at the end. The marriage supper of the Lamb comes, and you cohabitate with Jesus from there on out. But right now, we're part of the virgins. We've looked many times at the parable of the foolish virgins as five wise and five foolish. And um, if we become foolish virgins... Jesus will do to us what, what Joseph almost did to Mary when they were betrothed. He will separate himself from her. He'll put her away. And uh, But I want you to see something here. This goes directly against the teaching of imputed or transferred righteousness that we see taught in Calvinism or other circles as well. What is the fine linen that we're dressed in? The righteous acts of the who? Not the righteous acts of Jesus? Oh, so we're not, Jesus' personal righteousness isn't transferred to us then, huh? Now see, when we became Christians, of course, our linen was soiled, and Christ washed away our sins. So in that sense, we are cleansed and made white by him, but then we must walk in righteousness. So the fine linen we are clothed in is a righteous act of saints because the filth that we did have, and that we may accumulate in the future, as long as we repent of it, will be cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ. But this goes directly against the teaching of transferred righteousness. They call it imputed. They're using a biblical word, but they're defining imputed improperly. Okay, so, but it also says in verse 7, his wife has made herself ready. So the wife is doing this. Just like a wife, before she marries her husband, keeps herself pure and makes herself ready, prepares herself for her husband, and gives her the greatest gift that she could give him, which is her purity. Her faithfulness to him even before she gets married. That's the greatest gift a woman can give to her husband. It's her purity, her holiness. Blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. So who are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb, according to the two verses before that? Those who have made themselves ready. Pure. They're in white linen. Okay, so let's go back to uh, Matthew chapter 9. 
So there will come days when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast. So there is coming a time when Jesus will be taken away from them. I'll pause for a second. Is everybody else looking over there? Oh. Is that what happened? That's how you know they're done. Did you hear that sound? <laughs> Sorry. That's right, right. Okay, so verse 15 says, the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them. That's basically Jesus prophesying or, or foretelling about his... Is dying for them and being taken away from them. His ascension back to the, back to the Father in, in Acts. Uh, so a wedding is a celebration. It's not mourning. The celebration before the wedding is a celebration that's not meant for mourning. So that the mourning will come, the fasting will come when the bridegroom is taken from them. And we see all throughout the book of Acts, they do, they do fast. They do pray quite often. And then we have in verse 16 and 17, Jesus talking about the new covenant. And as I'm sure Anita knows more about this than I do, but when you take a patch and try to cover up a hole and you don't put that patch in the washer and dryer first and you sew it onto a pair of pants that have been in a washer and dryer that all the shrunken they're going to do, what's going to happen to that patch in that pants? It's going to come off. So Jesus is using a very common example they would understand to show them, listen, you don't try to force the old covenant into the new covenant. Okay, and then he uses the wine skins. Now, they use usually goat skins back then to hold wine. And goat skin had elasticity, it means it would stretch. As it was forced to stretch, it would stretch. Kind of like a rubber band, it would stretch, it would stretch. But if you pull a rubber band too far, what's going to happen to it eventually? Break. going to break. It only has so much elasticity. Okay? And even if you like, take a rubber band and wrap around something twice so it's really stretched out, and then you take it off that thing, it kind of lost its elasticity a little bit. Um, another example I can give is, is my ankles. Uh, they have ligaments and tendons in there that, that keep my ankle bone together the way it's supposed to be. But I've sprained my ankle so many times from playing basketball and other sports that the elasticity is gone now. Now they're kind of like spaghetti ankles. I can just walk down the street and you know, walk, walk, step on a crack and my ankle will just turn. Because it's not this, the, the rubber bands that are there holding the bones together aren't as strong as they used to be. And um, so Jesus is saying, you don't take a, a new patch and put it on an old garment. You don't, you don't take uh, old, uh, you don't put new wine into old wineskins. It'll burst. The, the wineskins have already lost their elasticity. And when the wine gets put in, it starts to ferment and, and spread. And then all the wine's gone. It's no good. So I want to talk to you a little bit this morning about the new covenant here. Let's go to Galatians chapter 4. Galatians is a very misunderstood book, unfortunately. And we already, I already talked through this one time in this fellowship. Um, I can't remember how long ago that was. I think I was probably in Fayetteville when I talked through it. But Galatians chapter uh, 4, and we'll start in verse 21. Now oftentimes you'll hear people talk about the new covenant of grace, and they, they basically simply seem to think it means that because I'm under grace, I can sin all I want, and I'm still going to be a Christian. Uh, if you say anything about holiness or repentance of sin, that's work salvation. Uh, that's the old covenant. No, that's not the old covenant. In Galatians, we have 
the Apostle Paul coming against this idea that that the Gentiles need to be circumcised to be saved. And Paul dealt with it all throughout the book of Romans, the book of Acts 15, the first council of Jerusalem, you see them dealing with this, that the people were, these people were coming behind these Jewish converts, supposedly converts anyway, were coming behind Paul's ministry and saying to the Gentiles, you must be circumcised to be saved. If you weren't circumcised, you weren't saved. So Paul's dealing with this all throughout the book of Galatians, and people think when he's talking about the law here, he's talking about the moral law of God. And if you're trying to obey the moral law of God, then you're trying to be saved by works. And as if they, they, they have this picture of God in their mind that God's you know, so you know, upset with people because they're trying to live holy. Like, what am I going to do with these people? They're trying to live holy. They can't be saved. That's, that's work salvation. Do we really think God's concerned with that? That people try to live too holy? That God's going to be upset with that? That's nonsense. You can never live too holy. Never live too holy. So let's look at Galatians chapter 4 and verse 21. I'm going to read through and then I'm going to talk about it a little bit. Tell me you who desire to be under the law. Do you not hear the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, the one by a bondwoman, the other by a free woman. But he, he was of the bondwoman, was born according to the flesh, and he of the free woman through the promise. Which things are symbolic, for these are the two covenants, the one from Mount Sinai, which gives birth to bondage, which is Hagar, and from, for this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia, and corresponds to Jerusalem, which now is, and is in bondage with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, which is the mother of us all. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren, you who do not bear. Break forth and shout, you who are not in labor. For the desolate has many more children than she who has a husband. Now we, brethren, as Isaac was, are children of promise. But as he who was born according to the flesh, then persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, even so it is now. Nevertheless, what does the scripture say? Cast out the bondwoman and her son, for the son of the bondwoman shall not be heir with the son of the free woman. So then, brethren, we are not children of the bondwoman, but of the free. Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free. Do not be entangled again with a yoke of bondage. Indeed I, Paul, say to you that if you become circumcised, Christ will profit you nothing. And I testify again to every man who becomes circumcised that he is a debtor to keep the whole law. You have become estranged from Christ. You who attempt to be justified by law, you have fallen from grace. For we, through the Spirit, eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but faith working through love. So we see here, he's comparing the two covenants, the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. And he uses one example from the Old Testament to compare the Old and New Covenant. He uses the example of these two children that Abraham had, Ishmael and Isaac. Now Ishmael... Was that God's will for, for Abraham to step out of his covenant with Sarah and take her bondwoman and get her pregnant and have a child? No. So that was of the flesh. That wasn't through the promise of God. It's not the promise that God made. He said, no, your promise shall come through who? Sarah. So there was a supernatural thing going on here. And, he's, and, and Paul was relating these two things back, that the Jews are children of Abraham of the flesh through the natural procreation here. Just like Ishmael was stepping out of God's promises, out of the supernatural working by opening Sarah's womb, who was very old, 90 years old. Abraham was 100 years old at that point in time. Something supernatural had to happen. It was miraculous that God did these things. And same with the people who are children of God. They're children of the promise, just like Isaac was to the promises of God. We are children of the promise, supernatural, born-again children of God. So he's comparing these two. And he says that, um, that those... Who, that Ishmael, if you go back to uh, Genesis, 
Let's see here. Genesis chapter 21, you'll see that Ishmael uh, made fun of Isaac and persecuted him. It was after that that they cast him out of the house. And the same thing was happening to the, the Gentiles who were Christians at that point in time. They were being persecuted by the Jews. And in the early church, some of the biggest persecutors of the church were the Jewish people. So they were persecuting the Christians. And uh, we see that, the, that we are the Jerusalem above who is free. And if you look at verse 27, it says, Rejoice, O barren, you who do not bear. Break forth and shout, you who are not in labor. For desolate has many more children than she who has a husband. That's quoting from Isaiah 5.4. And it's taught, if you look at Isaiah 5, it's talking about the New Jerusalem. And I'll go to it real quick here, and I'll even just give you a couple of verses from it to show you what I'm talking about. I'm sorry, Isaiah 54, not Isaiah 5. Isaiah 54 is what it's quoting from. And, um, and it's the first part of Isaiah 54. And it's talking about the, the very end. And let's just look at verse 4. It says, Do not fear, for you will not be ashamed, neither be disgraced, for you will not be put to shame. For you forget the shame of your youth, you will not remember the reproach of your widowhood anymore, for your maker is your husband. So we just read about the wedding feast, right? And how Christ became the husband of the church. And the verse 5 says, for your maker is your husband. So it's talking about the very end. And then it says, the Lord of hosts is his name, and your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. He is called the God of the whole earth. For the Lord has called you like a woman forsaken and grieved in spirit, like a youthful wife when you were refused, says your God. For a mere moment I have forsaken you, but with great mercies I will gather you. With a little wrath I hid my face from you for a moment. But with everlasting kindness I will have mercy on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. And uh, then we'll go on down to verse 11. It says, O oh, you afflicted one, tossed with tempest and not comforted, behold, I will lay your stones with colorful gems and lay your foundations with sapphires. I will make your pinnacles of rubies, your gates of crystal, and your walls of precious stones. Now, what's that talking about there? The New Jerusalem. Yeah, that's, that's, uh, you go to Revelation, you'll see what it's talking about there. Revelation 21, 18 to 21, you'll see for yourself, it's talking about the New Jerusalem. So, and, so he's talking about the New Jerusalem, and this is referring back in verse 27, this quote that Paul's giving here, he's referring back to that. The New Jerusalem that's coming. And right before he says that Jerusalem that's above is free. So he's talking about the coming of the, the new kingdom. And who's going to be a part of that new kingdom, according to what Paul is saying right here? The people of the old covenant or the people of the new covenant? People of the new covenant. Okay, so we hear, he's talking about the old and new covenant here. And we're not children of the bondwoman. And the law was given at Mount Sinai. Now what, what law was, we know the Ten Commandments was given at Mount Sinai, but what, what other laws were given there? All the other laws were given there. Ceremonial laws, sacrificial laws. Let me ask you this. Was there a moral law before the Ten Commandments? Yes. Yes, there was. It just wasn't written down on stone. But hasn't every man from the beginning of time had a conscience? With God's moral law written upon their hearts? So they know right from wrong? Didn't Cain know it was wrong to kill his brother? Without God telling him, don't kill your brother? He sure did. And even Romans, Romans 5, where people try to use it as a proof text for original sin, it talks about how even from Adam to Moses, when there was no law, 
people still sinned, just not according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam. Now, Adam, what kind of transgression did he have? Well, he broke a direct command of God. God says, thou shalt not eat, and he ate of it. Now, from there unto Moses, we don't have any record, we don't have any recording of God giving direct commands to people saying, don't do this, do this, don't do this, do this. But they still broke the law. And that's that still reigned, spiritual death still reigned in those people because they are breaking the law of their conscience. So yes, there was a moral law before Mount Sinai. So, so Paul's not referring to a moral law here. He talks about Mount Sinai. He's referring to the other laws given to the Jews. That's part of the Old Covenant. And verse 5 says, Stand fast, or, or, chapter 5, verse 1 says, Stand fast, therefore, in liberty by which Christ has made us free, and do not be entangled again with a yoke of bondage. Now, people will quote this verse, who come to Galatians with this idea that um, you're saved by grace through faith, but no works involved, your works have nothing to do with it, holiness has nothing to do with it, and they'll say, look, if you're trying to live holy, and if you say you can lose your salvation, then you're being tangled again in yoke of bondage. That's how they'll interpret this verse. But if we read it in context, we'll say again in verse 2, Indeed I, Paul, say to you, that if you become what? Circumcised. And say, if you, if you begin to obey God, He's talking about circumcision here. Christ will profit you nothing. It doesn't say if you become a holy saint of God that Christ will profit you nothing. It says if you become circumcised. It's talking about the Gentile because the Gentiles are being convinced by these people who are coming behind Paul, you must be circumcised to be saved. And he's saying if you trust in that, then you're, being, you're trying to be saved by works. And even in, in, earlier on in Galatians, Galatians 3, says, did you receive the Spirit of God? through being circumcised or by works of the law? Or did you receive the Spirit of God by faith? Did the miracles that were done among you, were they done among you by the circumcision of the flesh? Did someone get circumcised and all of a sudden a miracle happened? Or did you get miracles happen by the Spirit and by faith? Yeah, so Paul's talking about circumcision here. It'll profit you nothing. And again, I testify again to every man who becomes circumcised that he's a debtor to keep the whole law. If you're going to try to obey, if you think that obeying the ceremonial laws, the sacrificial laws, the dietary laws, the clothing laws of the Old Testament, that that is involved in your salvation, now you're a debtor to keep the whole of it. And you're going to say, well, if you don't, if you don't worship God on Saturday, now you're, and that's part of your salvation, if you don't do that, you're sinning, now you're a debtor to keep the whole rest of the law. But no one does that. Every once in a while, I see people with a kind of backslide in this position. They'll, they won't understand the Old and New Covenant. They'll think, well, I, I, I can't eat this, I can't eat that, I can't eat shellfish, you know, all these I can't wear mixed clothing. They'll say all these things. They'll be obeying the law in the Old Testament, but they're not obeying all of it. Not even close. And we know that in Galatians 3 that the, that the law was given us, Galatians 3.24, the law was given a tutor to bring us to Christ. They may be justified by faith. Now, the Ray Comfort would say that that law there means that it's just a moral law. He uses the Ten Commandments. No, the whole of the law was meant to drive you to Christ, to point him out. There are a shadow of things that were to come. So you, you, you are, are, are debtor to keep the whole law. Not only that, you have become estranged from Christ. That word estranged means severed. It means that you have uh, ceased. It's come to an end. So when someone goes back to the Old Testament covenant laws, 
and try to obey it as, uh, in regards to their salvation. And they're saying, if you don't do this, you can't be saved. They're estranged from Christ. They've been cut off from Christ. Severed. Because they're trying to be saved by the old covenant, which Christ abolished. You have fallen. You who attempt to be justified by law, you have fallen from grace. Fallen from grace. Now, I wonder what the perseverance of the saints and what's the people do with that verse. I thought you couldn't fall from grace. But these people are falling from grace. These Gentiles who are submitting to the Judaizers are falling from grace. For we through the Spirit eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. And this is a very important scripture here. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything. But faith working through love. So faith working through love does avail something. It does mean something. Which kind of destroys this whole idea, this whole interpretive scheme of how we interpret Galatians. That he is talking about circumcision the whole time. And to go along with that, I'm going to read you a couple of the verses. Colossians, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 7 in verse 19. Going along with this very thing. It says, Circumcision is nothing and uncircumcision is nothing. But keeping the commandments of God is what matters. So the separation here in Paul's theology and in the Bible's theology between these other laws of the Old Testament and the laws that were in place before the Old Testament laws even came along. Before Moses came along. Before Sinai came along. Those that served their purpose and now they're no longer needed. It's not a sin to disobey those things. And then Colossians chapter 2, and verse 11. Which says, In him you were also circumcised, where the circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. So we know the circumcision we have, according to Romans 2, is the circumcision not of the flesh, but of the heart. And we have the circumcision by putting off the bodies of the, of the deeds of the flesh, the, the sins of the flesh. That's Colossians 2.11 talks about. So we don't try to fit the new covenant into the old covenant. We don't try to combine the two. The new covenant is new. And Jesus gives these examples of the wine and the garment. You don't put a, a uh, new piece of unshrunk uh, patch on an old garment or already been shrunk. You don't put new wine in old wineskins. You put new wine into new wineskins. So Jesus is casting aside the old system. He's saying, look, there's a whole new system now. It's different. Where before God had a geographical, genealogical people that he called the Jews, now he has people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. He calls out for himself. It's completely different. All right, let's read on to uh, what happened with this woman who was healed and this girl. Let's let's read the, the what happened in, in Mark, and let's let's see if you can catch the differences here. We're going to try to harmonize the scriptures again. And I want you to pay attention to see if you see any new details as you read through Mark uh, chapter five, verse twenty-two through forty-three, and then you can tell me if, if you see a little a little detail that's new, maybe highlight it in your Bible, or put a little mark there with your pen, and then we can you can. 
tell me what you saw. Okay, so Mark chapter 5 and verse 20. And Mark has a lot more details. What it took Matthew, I think, I don't know, 13 to 20, let's see, from 18 to 26, nine verses, it took him 22 verses. So he, he had a lot more detail. Okay, so, and behold, one of the rulers of the synagogue came, Jairus by name, and when he saw him, he fell at his feet. And begged him earnestly, saying, My little daughter lies at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her, that she may be healed, that she will, and she will live. So Jesus went with them, and a great multitude followed him and thronged him. Now a certain woman had a flow of blood for twelve years, and suffered many things from many physicians. She spent all that she had, and was no better, but rather grew worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came behind him in the crowd, and she touched his garment. For she said, If only I may touch his clothes, I shall be made well. Immediately the fountain of her blood was dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of affliction. And Jesus, immediately knowing in himself that power had gone out of him, turned around in the crowd and said, Who touched my clothes? But the disciples said to him, You see the multitude thronging you, and you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to her to see who had done this thing. But the woman, fearing and trembling, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your affliction. While he was still speaking, some, some came from the ruler of the synagogue's house who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? And as soon as he has heard the word that was spoken, he said to the ruler of that synagogue, Do not be afraid, only believe. And he permitted no one to follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. And he came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue and saw a tumult and those who wept and wailed loudly. When he came in, he said to them, Why make this commotion and weep? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they ridiculed him. But when he had put them all outside, he took the father and the mother of the child and those who were with him and entered where the child was lying. When he took the child by the hand and said to her, To the kumi, which is translated, Little girl, I say to you, arise. Immediately the girl arose and walked, for she was twelve years of age. And they were overcome with great amazement. But he commanded them, strictly, that no one should know it and said that something should be given to her to eat. Okay, what do you see there that's, that's different or new details? Anyone? Daniel? Swaith Akumi. And what language is that, do you think? It's Aramaic, yeah. Aramaic. Anyone else? What else do you guys see? It's different. Jenna? What's his name? Jairus, that's right. His name. Hannah? That's right. So they got they got to the house with all the disciples came with them. When they went into the house, who did he take with them? And John. Kind of like his top three disciples. They were his, you know, you look at the Garden of Gethsemane, they went further with him as well there. They looked at the Transfiguration on the Mount, they were there with him as well, but only them. So he had these people he spent more time with, his disciples, and he had people he spent time with as well, but not as much time as the other three. And you can see later on in the church, they were like the three leaders, three biggest leaders in the church, as well as Jesus' half-brother, James. He was a big leader in the church too, in Jerusalem. Okay, what else do you see?
Kind of sounds funny, huh? Sarah, go ahead. Right, and that, that was, I heard Mr. John laugh on that one. Why, why was that, I mean, they, you hear what the response was, Jesus, you know, why would he say, you know, you see the throng around you, they're all touching you. Why are you saying, that, that you know, who touched me? And what was his response to that? Because what? power had gone out from him. He knew that someone had been healed, someone had been touched. Chris, did you have one too, or was that, was that the one you had? That was the one you had? Okay. Uh, anything else? Hannah? Okay, yeah. She she responded to him, and what, what she said to him, and she was came with fear and trembling. Okay. Anything else? How, how old was the little girl? Twelve. Yeah, twelve. So the same age as some of you. So you can imagine yourself being dead and Christ rising you from the grave. How miraculous that would be. And, um, and what, what, what did Jesus say after he healed them? What did he tell them not to do? Well, give her something to eat, yeah. But he said, don't tell anybody. That doesn't mention in Matthew's Gospel either. You know, the other thing I, I would say that's not, that's not mentioned in, in Matthew's Gospel is uh, in verse 35 it says um, there's actually a person coming to him twice. In verse 23 it says, my little daughter's at the point of death. And then in verse 35 it says, people came to him and said, your daughter has died, don't bother to teach her any further. So we see this two-step process there. And in Matthew it doesn't give a two-step process. It just says, um, where does it say? It says, my daughter is dead, I think. Yeah, my daughter has just died. So it's, it's not even talking about the first step in Matthew where he says, my daughter's about to die. He just says, my daughter's dead. But he, he, he trusts and has faith that Jesus can do it. And then uh, let's, let's look at the, the, the Luke account. We'll have a couple more things. So it's going to be a little harder to catch them here. But I'm going to see if you can catch uh, Luke chapter uh, 8. And... Um, In fact, I'm just going to start in verse 50, because that's where the new, there's only a couple new things there. It says, it says when Je- it, the whole story starts in verse 40 of Luke 8, but I'm going to start in verse 50. When Jesus heard it, he answered him, saying, Do not be afraid, only believe, and she'll be made well. When he came into the house, he permitted that no one to go in except Peter, James, and John, the father and mother of the girl. They all wept and mourned for her. But he said, Do not weep, she is not dead, but sleeping. And they ridiculed him, knowing that she was dead. But he put them all outside, took her by the hand, and called, called, saying, Little girl, arise. Then her spirit returned, and she arose immediately, and he commanded that something be given to her to eat. And her parents were astonished, but she char- he charged them to tell no one what had happened. There's a couple of little things there. Anyone catch them? Sarah? Fight the kumi, okay. Right. 
Okay, so we're looking for some things that are added here. That's a little bit different. Look at things that are added here, added details. Our spirit returned. That's a very important detail. Because the body without the spirit is what? Dead. The Bible says. And we'll get into what the sleeping dead thing means here in a minute. There's one other thing that, who, who went in with him on this one? Yeah, the mother and father of the girl, too. It talks about them going in as well. And those are the ones that he said to them, don't tell anyone. Now, in Matthew, it says that the news went out about the country, all about the country, that what had happened. Uh, I doubt it was those three disciples or the mother and father who did this. It probably, I mean, people are going to find out. People are just wailing. I mean, in, in the Jewish culture, when people die, there's this wailing. There's, they even have people they employ to come out and wail for them and play instruments. To, and it's just a really, it calls it tumult. It's really just loud, and it's like, oh, you know, it's just so much going on. Me, if, if you know, somewhere I die, I just want peace and quiet. I don't want lots of loudness, you know. If you just basically go away, you know, be quiet. She's not dead yet. She's sleeping. Um, so that's what happened there. Okay, so we saw the different details. And Go ahead, sure. Oh, okay. Right. 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 And Matthew doesn't record that at all. Right. 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 Don't don't bother a teacher. Obviously they didn't have the faith. But he did. Yeah. That's good. That that definitely was testing of his faith, I'm sure of it. Okay, so we, we see this issue going on here and um uh, when the woman who comes to him wants to touch the hem of his garment, this woman had had a flow of blood for how many years? Twelve years. And Luke says she spent her whole livelihood on it, on this, and couldn't find anything to fix her. And in the in the Jewish uh, realm, and, and you'll see this in Leviticus chapter 15, verses 19 through 27, she'd be unclean. She couldn't touch people. Basically, uh, whatever she slept in would be considered unclean. If she had a husband, she couldn't have any int intimacy with him because he'd be con considered unclean. So this whole issue, and she just wanted to touch the hem of his garment. And I, it doesn't say here, but the hem of his garment, in, in, in the Jewish culture, men had these tassels on their garment that would hang off. And um, let's just go to that real quick. That's Numbers 15. And I think this might have been what she touched here. Numbers 15, 38 through 40. Okay. Speak to the children of Israel. Tell them to make tassels on the corners of their garments throughout their generation to put a blue thread in the tassel of the corners. You shall have the tassel that you may look upon it and remember all the commandments of the Lord and do them and that you may not follow the harlotry to which your own heart and your own eyes are inclined that you may remember to do undo all the commandments and be holy before your God. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. I am the Lord your God. So God is, is telling them to put these tassels on their garments to remind them to obey him. Uh, to keep all of the commandments that he's given them to remember to keep them. And here she comes, uh, not supposed to be touching anybody, and she basically touches the hem of his garment, probably these tassels, I don't know for sure, and she gets healed. So she comes to this point of of urgency, this point of desperation, 
where she knows she's tried everything else and nothing else can help her. So she comes to the one person that can help her. And her, her faith has made her well. And he said, be of good cheer. And uh, probably the reason he said be of good cheer was because she was, she was trembling. She was fearful when she came before him. He's like, be of good cheer. I'm not angry with you that you touched me, even though you're considered unclean by everybody else. I'm not angry that you touched me. I'm glad you're well. Be of good cheer. And he dismissed her. So I want to I talk about this issue of the girl is not dead, but she is sleeping. Okay, let's go to John chapter 11. And we're going to look at the account of Lazarus, who was risen from the grave. And Jesus tells us what he means by this in the scripture. John chapter 11, verses 1 through 15. Now a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, the town of Mary, and her sister Martha. It was that Mary who anointed the Lord with fragrant oil and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. Therefore the sister sent to him, saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. When Jesus heard that, he said, The sickness is, is not unto death, but for the glory of, the, of God, that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that he was sick, he stayed two more days in a place where, where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, Let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, lately the Jews sought to stone you, <clears throat> and are you going there again? Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, it does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. If one walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not day. These things he said, he said and after that he said this, said this to them, Our friend Lazarus sleeps, but I go that I may wake him up. Then his disciples said, Lord, if he sleeps, he will get well. However, Jesus spoke of his death, but they thought that he was speaking about taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And I am glad for your sakes that I was not there, that you may believe. Therefore, let us go to him. So Jesus clarifies what he means by when he says, only sleeping. They are dead. But then he says, they're not dead. So what is he saying here? I think what he's saying is that he says they're sleeping, they're not dead. He's, what he's saying is that they're not dead for good. They're not, they're not gonna, I'm going to rise them right now. Before the resurrection, the final resurrection, I'm going to rise them right now. He says it about this girl and says it about, the, about Lazarus. So they're not sleeping. Some people will try to use it to try to promote soul sleep, uh, like the Jehovah Witnesses believe or some other groups believe. I think Seventh-day Adventists believe in a form of that as well. That you know, when we when we die, we're just in a perpetual state of sleep until Christ comes back. No, it's not true. Not true. So they were dead, but they weren't finally dead physically. Their final physical death had not come yet, because Jesus was going to rise them back to life before the resurrection. Okay, does that make sense to everybody? Okay, so they're sleeping in the sense that they're not dead physically finally until the resurrection. So we have to understand what Jesus is saying here when he says she's only sleeping, she's not dead. He wasn't saying that she was literally sleeping. He was simply saying, I'm going to rise her right now. And we know that from the, from the Luke account that her spirit had left her. And we know the Bible says that the body without the spirit is dead. Okay? And one thing I want to point out here, this last thing I'll say, is that we see in this account of this, this young girl being raised to life that she had just died. And he rose with her life. And then, if we were to look at the uh, 
I believe it's in Luke 7, 11 through 15, we see the example of a young man who's already in a coffin going off to his funeral. And Jesus rises in the new life. And then we see the example of Lazarus who's been rotting in the tomb for four days. And he rises in the new life. So I think what Jesus is showing us through these accounts, no matter what stage of death you're at, he can rise you up to new life. He rose up right after they died. He rose them after they were died for a day or so, and they were in a coffin going off to their funeral. And then he rose Lazarus, or he was stinky in the tomb. People were, didn't want to smell him because they, you know, he had been there for a while, decomposing. So Jesus has the power, and he's and what does he say to Mary and Martha when he when he finally gets to Bethany? He says, "I am the resurrection and the life. If you believe in me, he will live." So God is able to heal no matter what stage of the process is at. I'm not saying that we should, uh, you know, the, I've been working on my Fall Teacher website here, and Benny Hinn one time said on one of his programs, he said, you know, if, if I were you, I'd place my dead loved one in front of the TV at my program for a day and, and wait and see if they get risen from the, gra- risen from the grave, risen from the dead. And I'm not saying we should do that. I'm, I'm simply saying that God is able. And sometimes God is willing to rise people even from the dead. You know, if God, God forbid it gets so bad in America that you know we go to the streets and one of us gets killed. But the first thing I would do is just start praying for that person. I wouldn't assume they're done for good. Who knows what kind of miracle God will do? And who knows that, what that will do to the crowd if someone gets risen from the grave in front of them and they were, just got done killing them. Maybe they'll get saved. All right, well, that's, that's what I have for you today. Do you have any uh, questions, objections, or anything you want to add? <laughs> well, he talked about, that's in the, uh, when he's talking about the those who, uh, talking about communion, I believe. He said someone had fallen asleep early. Let's see here. In verse uh, 30, he talks about eating and drinking in an unworthy manner. Uh, drinks judgment to himself, not certain the Lord's body. As, as 1 Corinthians 11, 29 just read. Verse 30 says, For this reason many are weak and sick among you, and many sleep. Yeah. So God can God can bring a judgment upon you of killing you if, if you're involved in these things. Yeah. So he, he, he relates sleep back to death as well. Yeah. So Paul uses the same terminology. I don't know where they are. Doesn't say. But that girl's spirit came back to her. I don't know where her spirit was. Doesn't say. Um, Lazarus, I think we can probably safely assume that he might have went down to to Hades, to paradise, and they came back up. So that's four days. The girl had just died, so. Right. Right. Yeah, I mean, oftentimes we hear people who had. You know, when they talk about their near-death experience, they said they had an out-of-body experience. They, they were kind of floating over their body, looking at their body. Now, I wasn't speaking anything about those kind of things. 
so it, we're, we're kind of working from silence here as to what happens. Uh, could that possibly happen? Maybe. I don't know. He's talking about himself, yeah. Right. 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 I think it's like probably second grade, I think it's nine, I believe. I know what you're referring to. You talked about the third heaven. Right. Right. Yeah, I mean, they, uh, we don't really know. We're kind of... The Bible doesn't really go into detail about these kind of things. What happens to someone if they're they die and the Christ is going back to life right then? Uh, we don't really know, you know. And, and then in, in Revelation, the two witnesses are killed, and there isn't life. So these happens. These things happen, and we don't we don't really know where the spirits go. It could be in paradise. It could be floating in air above the body. I don't know. But I, I don't think we can. And you have to be real careful those kind of near-death experience issues. People try to judge the Bible by their experience, and their experience becomes more exalted than the Bible. Even if their experience goes against what the Bible says, you know. So, I don't think they're not.
bump. Amen. Matthew 6, 13 and 14. Matthew 18. And he was a Christian. And then he lost the salvation. Brought the life. See how dangerous that, that, that doctrine is? I can have it forgiven for someone. Yeah, I do know what you're talking it's about. Like, it's like looking up, you see this little, this little like flare coming out, right. right? And then it, the, the camera comes into that little flare, and you see it's a body that's falling. It's falling into this place, and it's happening like rain. Right. No, 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 this is just a video. It's a picture of hell. Yeah, it's not testimony. But it's, it's pretty, pretty scary. See on that video, and he give, they, I mean they're giving details that you know we don't have in the Bible, so it's it's all conjecture at that point. But uh, what's the name of that? that the Lazarus Factor. Lazarus Factor. Okay, I'll have to borrow that from you if you still have it. I don't, I don't have it. You can get it. You can watch it. Me too. Lazarus Factor. Okay. Questions or
They were saved by the sacrifices. The Hebrew says that the animal sacrifices are not sufficient to save you. Say the same way Abraham saved by faith. <coughs> well, answer this question: Was Abraham saved before the Moses or after Moses? Was Abraham saved before the giving of the, of the Mosaic law? Was Abraham saved before he was circumcised? There's the answer. That law was given for a time. It wasn't permanent. It's the old covenant. And the whole purpose of the law was to make it for himself a nation through which the Messiah would come through and bring salvation to all the world. A blessing to the whole nation. But you have to keep this nation separate from the world around it, different from the world around it. And all the law that he's given was point to Christ. They're a shadow of things to come. So the whole law should be a tutor. So they have the whole law. It should have taught them. It should have tutored them. Christ. But they weren't getting it. Right, and, but the problem was, as we talked about before, is that they, they made a self-righteous standard. They had the Talmud. You've heard of that before. Where it's the Pharisaic interpretation of the law the scribes, and they're adding to the law, like what you can and can't do on the Sabbath, and they make that the law, which, if according to Matthew, and what you said in Matthew, it nullifies the work of God, the Word of God in your life, the work of the Word of God in your life. So people add extra rules to the faith, and they're putting restrictions upon themselves, like they were doing. Now they're being self-righteous. Now they're being like the Pharisees were. Like when you guys go to the streets recently, I think Tina said she ran to people who said that you're being self-righteous, she said she's obeying God. No, obeying God is God-righteousness because God says, do this and you'll be righteous. That's God-righteousness. Self-righteousness is exalting your own standard and obeying that. Uh, like there's <coughs> one example I give you, United Pentecostal Church down in uh, Louisiana. They said that, that um, women have to have long hair up in a bun and that you have to, the men have to wear suits all the time with ties. And the girl, the woman's shirt had to come out of here. If you weren't doing that, you weren't saved. And the Bible nowhere says those things. So they're adding to the law of God. And saying, if you don't do these things, you're not saved. Now, if God spoke that to their hearts, they're obligated according to their conscience. So whatever is not of faith is sin, Romans 14, 23. They're obligated to obey what God has spoken to them. Individually. What, collectively, if everyone collectively has been told that? But I'm not going to proclaim something to you that God's spoken to me that's not directly from his word. He ministers to me, and we're in, we're in different uh, ways, different points of our growth here. All of us are. You know, so I may edify a brother or sister of what God's spoken to me, but I'm not going to say if you do this, you're in sin. You know, some people may say, well, God spoke to me and told me not to have the internet. Well, God hasn't told me that. In fact, God has used my time in order to, to bless others and to encourage me and to strengthen my faith. Some people will say, well, God's told me I can't have a TV in my house. Well, according to your faith, so be it unto you. God's spoken to you that. You need to not have a TV in your house. God hasn't spoken that to me. You know, so there's
Yes. So, I mean, th that's self-righteousness, but that has nothing to do with the Old Testament law. The Old Testament law was given by God. That was not self-righteousness. But God installed a new covenant. He did away with the old. So, once again, now it's not about a geographical nation that's genealogically from Abraham. It's about people who are of the faith of Abraham, not of the flesh of Abraham. And it's not about circumcision of the flesh, circumcision of the heart. So this is the new covenant as opposed to the old covenant. And if you're just of Abraham of the flesh, then you're of the old covenant. You're in bondage still. And you're not part of the new Jerusalem that he, he referenced to in Isaiah 54. He's talking about what happens in the, in the end when God will be, we will be his bride. And he will be our husband. So it's, it's, it's something that we really need to, to think about because I know lots of sincere believers who are turning back aside and trying to become Jewish. Uh, now, there's no, there's no condemnation if someone wants to eat according to the Jewish dietary law for a healthier, to be healthier, because obviously there were reasons God gave them those things. And I think not eating catfish, which are bottom dwellers, not eating pigs, which are usually, depending on how they're raised, or eat slop, you know, it, there's profitable things in those things. Uh, but to do those things to be saved, or if you don't do these things, you're not saved. It's going against the new covenant because those things are done away with. So, right. Right. Yeah, there's lots of Jews who will do that, and the danger with that, some Messianic Jews, they become so Jewish. They become separated from the world in a different sense than they should be separated. You know, kind of like almost like the the Amish communities that want to be separated for for the wrong reasons, you know, not because of holiness, but because of just cultural standards. You know, I can't do what you're doing. So, but I, I've known lots of genuine believers who've turned aside to these things, and they've it becomes their focus. Not living holy, not uh, not evangelizing the lost, but being Jewish becomes their focus. But God doesn't require us to be Jewish. So. Right. Yep. All the more. Right. So you see how simple you are. It's Christ. Right. Drive you to Christ. Yeah. So. Okay.